So today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn your Bibles there, if you will, this morning. And we're looking at today signs of the times, specifically the signs of the great tribulation. Now, one of the purposes in Paul writing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is to address the, this eschatology again, the study of the last times. Remember in the first book, 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about this with the Thessalonians. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, that there's going to be coming a day soon, he thought, he had immediacy about it, but he, there's coming a day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. The Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God's going to blow. And then the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who are alive and remain until that time of the trumpet blowing are going to be caught up. Again, the Latin word for caught up is rapturo. We're going to be caught up in the clouds. It means to, uh, to snatch away suddenly. That's the rapture. Rapture in the Latin is the word for caught up there. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we're supposed to always be with the Lord after that. So Paul had shared with them in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a worldwide event coming. It's the rapture of the church. It's where every single true Christian is going to be suddenly taken out of this world. Worldwide event. And then after that, 1 Thessalonians 5 says the day of the Lord is going to come after that. The day of the Lord being the judgment of the God upon the world for seven years. It's called the Great Tribulation. If you want to study in detail about the Great Tribulation, you could go to Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 18, and it talks about the Great Tribulation specifically. There's going to be seven judgments of uh, seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of God's wrath. Bam, 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 during those seven years. It's Great Tribulation. And then Revelation 19 says that Christ is going to come back, and then he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth with us for a thousand years. And then after that, the great white throne of judgment. Now, what was happening was the believers there in Thessalonians, we saw last week, were facing persecution. And so they got the wrong idea. We're in the great tribulation. And they're freaking out because they thought this great tribulation, Paul was talking about, we're in it because we're getting persecuted. Now, you need to differentiate between a man facing tribulation because of persecution and God's judgment upon the world. And Paul's going to make it clear today that we're, that, that there's certain signs that need to be in place for you to be in the great tribulation. And Paul's going to make it clear these signs have not taken place, and they haven't taken place in our lifetime yet either. Now, what's interesting is the signs of the times are going to be like birth pains, Jesus said in Matthew 24. What does that mean? It means that, that they're going to start gradually coming true towards the end of the age, and then they'll go to full fruition during the great tribulation. And so Jesus said, be aware of the signs of the times. He said in Mark chapter 13, talking about this, he said that, that we need to be aware of the signs of the times. And we need to be people that are aware of when we're getting close. Why? So we're living right. And we'll talk about that at the end of the message. And Jesus also talked about in Luke chapter, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he talked about the signs of the times too. And he said we're supposed to be people that when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your head. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. And so what is this, this scripture we're looking at today about the signs of the great tribulation, what does that have to do with us? I mean, because we're going to be raptured out of here before the great tribulation even happens. Well, again, Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's going to be birth pangs leading up to this great tribulation. I've been through birth pangs four times with my wife. Wow. 
you did this to me. <laughs> no, she didn't say that. She looked that way at me a couple times, though. It's like, and, and I remember those four different times when the birth pains kicked in before the actual baby was born. What happens, ladies, with those birth pains? They grow in intensity and frequency, right? That's how birth pains work. And so when Jesus said, when we get close to the end, there's going to be birth pangs, what he's saying is there's going to be these signs that will come to full fruition during the Great Tribulation. We'll already start experiencing some frequency and intensity of these signs before the Great Tribulation even kicks in. And so what does this have to do with us? We need to be aware. We need to be aware that the signs are already starting to kick in like birth pangs. And so I'm going to give you these signs this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what are the signs of the Great Tribulation? What are the signs of the end of the age? What's going to be in place before this happens? And we'll study that this morning. 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. Here we go. It says, now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. When is that again? What's, 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 what's this worldwide event I just talked about? The gathering of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture when we're snatched up, taken out of here to meet the Lord in the air. Heidi and I are, are re-watching those Left Behind movies. There's a trilogy. There's three of them with Kirk Cameron. And I was reminded the other day, too, of the, of the worldwide incredible event the rapture is going to be. As I saw this film depicting it again with you know, people on an airplane. I was like, shoo, raptured out of here. And the people that don't know Christ are still on the plane and they're seeing all these clothes all over the place with no people. And they see, and then there's going to be car crashes all over the world because people driving snatched out of here. Raptured out here, gathered to be with the Lord. It's going to be a worldwide catastrophic. It's going to blow people's minds. Now kids being raptured out and their parents not right with God and they stay behind. Can you imagine that, being a parent? And this is going to be a worldwide effect that's going to happen with the rapture, the gathering together to him. And then he says in verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if uh, from us to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't freak out about the great tribulation. Don't, if someone comes in the spirit and gives you some word of prophecy by the spirit that you're in the great tribulation, don't believe that. I've taught you otherwise. I've taught you, he, he actually taught them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the last chapter of the last book. He said this, great verse on pre-trib rapture. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he was teaching them about the judgment that's coming during the great tribulation, he said, hey, listen, you're not appointed for this. He hasn't appointed you for his judgment that's coming upon the world. He's going to take you out through the rapture. So Paul says, don't listen to a spirit or a message or a letter. Interesting, there's probably a fraudulent letter that was being passed around saying, this is from Paul. Paul's saying in this letter, you're in the great tribulation. Paul says, don't believe that. Don't believe that. And then he says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the great tribulation will not come until the apostasy comes first. What's that saying? Saying the first sign that you're in the Great Tribulation is the apostasy. Apostasy, interesting word, it means a departure from the faith. And here's what's going to happen. When the Great Tribulation kicks in, this world leader, who's going to be a world leader economically, politically, and religiously, called the Antichrist, is going to come on the scene, 
And he's going to be a leader, not only governmentally and not only economically, he's going to be a leader religiously. Uh, Revelation 17.1 describes his, his reign as the great harlot. Great harlot be the one that's bringing people away to spiritual adultery. And that's going to be the universal church. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to set up this universal church where he's going to bring all the religions of the world together to worship him. And we'll see that in the next couple of verses. And it's apostate. And the Christianity at that point, the church, is going to be in full-on apostasy. What does that mean? It's going to discard all biblical truth and go with the teaching of the Antichrist, and it's going to be an apostate sense, departing from true Christianity. And that's going to happen. It's going to happen worldwide. Interesting. Now, this is another factor, I think, that points to the rapture. Because the rapture has to happen first before this worldwide apostasy because we as Christians that are biblical Christians aren't going to put up with a worldwide universal church run by the Antichrist. We'll be the salt we're supposed to be and stop that. There's always been a remnant as God's people on the earth. There's always been a remnant of people that stick with the truth. And that's what we're supposed to be in this world. Now, birth pangs, we're seeing it. We're already seeing a a, a direction within the universal church around the world of apostasy, of leaving biblical truth. It's already happened in the church. I was talking to my chiropractor this week, and he was talking about that he had just had a a person before me who was adjusting, who was talking about his denominations, bringing in a bishop that's openly gay to that whole region of the south here. That's apostasy. That's, that's veering from biblical truth because the Bible says that lifestyle, yes, we're to love those people in the lifestyle, but the truth of the matter is that lifestyle is wrong. It's sin. And the church is fully accepting that. That's, that's already going in that, not all churches, we're not going to accept that. We're going to stand on truth, but already there's whole denominations going in that direction, and that's apostasy. It's very important that we realize as we get closer to the end of the age, that the church is going to become more and more apostate as it veers towards when the Antichrist is going to come in the world and have a universal church that's fully apostate. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Acts, yeah, pray. That's good too. But we're also to be Bereans. Acts 17.11 says the Bereans were noble-minded more than even the Thessalonians because they received the word with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. We're not just supposed to blindly accept what the church or anybody else says. We're to be students of the word ourselves, and we're to be people that study the word well enough that we don't go apostate. Why do we do so many Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel? Now Mike's doing all these classes on the Bible. Now we're even getting involved in this Bible college thing. Why are we doing all this? Because we want you to be Bereans. We want you to be noble-minded, searching the scriptures yourself so you don't give way to the apostasy that's coming. And get, get, get going down this road that's wrong, that's wrong. And you know what? As long as this bald preacher's up here or the other bald preacher's up here, we're going to teach the Word. We're going to teach the Word here. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Because we are, we are going to be the remnant. In Calvary Chapel, the thing I got me sold on Calvary Chapel is, it, is, is the distinctive of Calvary Chapel is Bible teaching. Verse by verse, every book in the Bible, the whole counsel of God, we are not going to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God because we want to be that remnant before the apostasy comes. And that's how that applies to us. So the first thing that's going to happen through the Great Tribulation is apostasy. The church is going to go, bam, 
departure from biblical truth. Totally. No more Orthodox Christianity. And again, I think that points to the rapture because Christians are not going to allow that to happen until we're raptured out of here. And then when the whole world is devoid of Christians, that's when the church is going to easily go into apostasy. Now, the second sign of the Great Tribulation, go on after the apostasy, look what it says. It says that after the apostasy, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object to worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you? I was telling you these things. Second sign that's going to be placed that verifies the world is in full-on great tribulation is the Antichrist. And notice the description of this Antichrist. He is a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction, and his goal is to get the whole world to worship him. Interesting what it's saying here is what he's actually going to do is he's going to rebuild the temple. And a part of the way this Antichrist is going to get his power is he's going to be a great diplomat. To the fact, to the point that he's going to have the whole world under his leadership and he's going to bring a peace treaty, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He's going to bring a firm covenant for a week, which symbolizes seven years. He's going to bring a peace treaty between Israel and Jewish people in the Muslim world. And the way he's going to get this is he's going to build, we see here, a temple. And I believe the temple is going to be built right next on the Temple Mount, right next to the Dome of the Rock, side by side. And he's going to somehow, it's never been done in history, he's going to somehow bring peace between Jews and Muslims to the point that Jews are going to be in their temple on the same mount as, as the Dome of the Rock where Muslims will be worshiping side by side with Jews in this one world religion. And then what's going to happen, according to this verse, he's going to set up a seat, a throne probably in that temple, and he's going to have the whole world worship his image in that temple. And at that point... That's the abomination of desolation. Halfway through the Great Tribulation, he's going to have his world worship him as he's got this image in the temple. And at that point, the Jewish people are going to, bam, a light's going to go on. They're going to see, we're not supposed to worship this Antichrist. And they turn from the Antichrist. And then, not only will Christians, people that come to Christ from the Great Tribulation, be persecuted, but then Jews will be persecuted too. And that's when they're going to turn to Christ. And they're going to flee to the city that I've been to three different times called Petra. It's a rock city, and that's going to be their place of refuge. And they'll be hiding in the caves there away from the Antichrist. So the second sign that needs to be in place is this Antichrist. And he's going to come. And he's going to come, as the book of Revelation calls him, as a beast. Listen to what Revelations, more, dis, more details about him. Revelation 13, verse 1, it says this. It should be up on the screen. It says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, wherever you see dragon in the book of Revelation, it's Satan. Satan stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast. Whenever you see beast, it's the Antichrist. And he says this. Then I saw a beast, the Antichrist, coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten died of crowns. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, the Antichrist, which I saw was a, like a leopard. He's going to be fast and fierce. And his feet like that, those of a bear. It will be destructive, again, son of destruction. And his mouth will be like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and a throne of great authority. So the dragon, Satan, is going to give full authority of hell to this Antichrist. 
And one of his heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. In other words, there's going to be an assassination attempt that he survives. And the whole earth was amazed and fouled after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon. They worshiped Satan because he gave authority to the beast, which is the Antichrist. They worshiped the beast, saying, who is the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to this Antichrist a mouth. Notice, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and his authority to act was for 42 months, was given for three and a half years. He'll have full world dominion. Now, question. What does that have to do with us? We're out of here. We're raptured. Beat me up, Jesus. We're gone. And then this great tribulation, the Antichrist is coming and say, what does that have to do with us? Again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 says, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. 1 John 4, 3, it says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard that is coming, and it's now already in the world. And so this Antichrist is already, and Satan himself is already paving the way for this Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist is this. We've already talked about universalism. It's the, it's the whole false teaching that all religions are fine. All religions are fine. Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslims, Jews, Christians, we should all be under one tent. All the roads lead to the same God. Is that true? Jesus said, I'm the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except, except through me. There's only one, Peter said there's only one name under heaven by which man must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians in these last days, as we get more and more of the spirit of the Antichrist and the universalism, we need to be taking stances that Jesus is the only way. We don't need to give in to the political correctness around us that we're going to tolerate all things saying everything's fine. Because not everything's fine. Jesus said, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me, which is the cross, but, but not my will be done, your will be done. And the Father said to Jesus clearly, there's no other way. You need to go to the cross because you're the only way. And that's why the cross was a necessity because Jesus' death on the cross is the only way we could be forgiven and our sins need to be sacrificed for it through his death. And we need to stick with that because the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, which is universalism. Let's bring everything under the same tent, one world religion. And so we need to take stances. We need to take strong stances that this is what we believe because the spirit of the Antichrist, it's already in the world. Remember when Heidi and I, several years ago, we went to Michigan to visit her sister. We were on a Midwest tour of going to Iowa, seeing her family, and then we went to Michigan. And I just read a book by a pastor of the, the, probably the fastest-growing church in America at the time and one of the largest churches in America. And it was a book called Velvet Elvis. And I already kind of was eh, like this. I kind of, my spirit was going, oh, some of the things he was writing. Because he had a whole, whole section in this book about, you know, is it really important for us to believe in the virgin birth? Yeah, because that points to the deity of Christ, having God the Father being his conceiving with Mary. Yeah, virgin birth is important. Then he's questioning things like, is it really important for the church to, you know, is it really important for the church to really take a stance against abortion or homosexuality? Is that really important? A whole chapter on that. I'm going, oh, this guy, he's got one of the fastest growing, largest churches in America. And so when we were in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where her sister lives, the church is right in that town. So I said, well, I'm going to go by and check this guy's church out. And it was during the week, so the pastor wasn't there, but one of his staff persons was there. They gave us a tour of the church, and it was, it was huge. They bought a whole mall. And the sanctuary, you could see like 5,000-plus people, and the stage was right in the middle of the sanctuary, so it was just surrounded by like 5,000 chairs. I'm going, wow. 
But then I was thinking, he's got one of the largest churches, one of the fastest growing churches in America, but he's not teaching the truth. And then shortly after that, just within a few years, he wrote a whole other book. And he went from questioning the virgin birth, questioning whether we should take stances against this or that, and the whole other book, this was a total book of heresy because he questioned the very existence of hell. And he made it sound throughout the book implication that the only hell there really is is here on earth and that when we die, all people will be fine because God's love will win. That's the name of the book, uh, Love Wins. It's heresy. He ended up getting run out of the church and stuff, but I was thinking, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's already infiltrating in the church where churches, some of the fastest growing, some of these huge churches, they're getting people to come through the door because they're not teaching the truth. And there's a spirit there. There's a spirit that's, that's of the Antichrist. Universalism, be very careful with that. Let's fend against that by taking stances that says Jesus is the only way because that's what the Bible says. Stick with the Word of God in that. And then the third thing, the third sign, after we've seen the first sign being you know, apostasy, the second sign being the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, son of destruction, the third sign, going with our Scripture, go back, it says this, and you know what restrains him now? So that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so, and he's taken out of the way. Here's the third sign of the Great Tribulation. The restraining power that's in the world today to restrain the Antichrist from getting full force and lead, leadership and dominion of the world will be gone. Now, what is that restrainer? I agree. I think it's specifically, I think it's the Holy Spirit working in Christians in the church of Jesus Christ, working in them and through them. And, and when the church is raptured, again, it points to the rapture. When the church is raptured, the restraining influence of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church and in Christians and through the church is gone. And so he'll have full freedom to not only to not only be uh, politically and economically a leader of the world, but religiously the leader of the world too. The restraining the restrainer will be gone, and the restrainer is, again, the Holy Spirit working in and through us as the church of Jesus Christ. Interesting. And that's what we're supposed to be doing, church, by the way. We're supposed to be the salt in light of the earth. Listen to what Jesus said that Matthew 5, 14, 16. This is a theme of our men's conference again. It says, Church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, and they too may glorify your Father in heaven. That's our job. There's darkness, and it's getting darker. As we get closer to this Antichrist, as we get closer to the Great Tribulation, listen, Jesus said it's going to get darker. He said lawlessness is going to increase and people's love is even going to grow colder. Have we seen that in our generation? I mean, when I was a kid, it was getting in fights at recess was the big thing at school. Now people are bringing guns and shooting people. It's crazy. Lawlessness is increasing. And as lawlessness is increasing, it says we're supposed to be the light of the world. And before this, he also said we're supposed to, Jesus said we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Now, salt in that culture is different than salt in our culture. What do we primarily use salt for in our culture? Flavor, right? 
In that culture of the first century, salt primarily was used not for flavor, but a preservative. A preservative, they'd put the salt in the meat because they didn't have refrigeration, and the salt in the meat would keep the meat from getting rotten. What's the implication for us as the church? We're supposed to be a restraining influence that keeps this world from getting rotten. We're a restraining influence from this world going totally black and rotten. You know what I'm talking about, church. It's when you're at work. And you walk up on the water cooler and there's a whole huddle of people. And they're telling dirty jokes and obscenities and sexual innuendos and their latest exploits. And you walk up and all of a sudden, boom! They stop swearing and they stop doing their dirty jokes. And they say, oh, Holy Joe's here. Righteous Mary just walked up. And you think, wow, I'm being alienated. Yeah, but you're being righteous too. You're being the restraining influence from that office going totally rotten when you're out. That's where we're supposed to be. You know, I like golf, and several times I've, I've had times where I just go off and play nine holes by myself, and I'll get in a, I'll get in a nine hole thing with somebody else, and, and the first couple of holes, they'll be like, you know, they'll miss a putt, and there's a four letter F bomb or something like that, and then they'll start telling me about some immorality they're involved in and stuff, and then after two or three holes, they'll say this well, what, what do you do for a living, anyways? <laughs> I could say, well, I pastor Calvary Chapel of Lexington. They go, ooh. And then for the rest of the seven or eight or whatever rest of the holes, they don't swear at all. And there's no more talk about their sexual exploits or immorality because Pastor John's there. And I go, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my favorite place in the world was a place called Hills Lake. And I'd go there with my family. That was our vacation spot because my grandpa had a lake house up there. And it was just, it was paradise for a kid. I mean, you'd wake up in the morning and we'd have like water skiing and rafts to swim to and sandy beaches and spring-fed lake and stuff like that. And it's just best family memories in my childhood was Hills Lake. But one of the things my dad and I used to do, it was awesome, is we would let all the ladies stay up in the cottage. We'd walk down the hill to Hills Lake and it'd be pitch black because there's no streetlights. This is all in the middle of wild. The closest town had 500 people in it, and this was five miles away from the closest town. We'd go down to the pier, and we'd lay on our backs. It's pitch dark, and we would have binoculars. We'd watch the stars, and it was like the stars were beaming on us. It was pitch black dark, but these incredible bright stars. And then every once in a while, there'd be a shooting star. And see it go all, all the way across the sky. I go, Dad, did you see that? And he'd, he'd wake up because he was snoring. <laughs> and he'd go, yeah, I saw that song. That was awesome. He didn't see it, but he said he saw it. But those stars, those stars are representative of what we're supposed to be. We're, supposed to, we're in darkness. We're, this world's getting darker. It's getting more rotten. And we're supposed to be like the stars, shining in the brightness of the darkness. Let your light, church, be a restraining, righteous influence of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works. They too may glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's go on with our scripture now. And then it says this, after we're, we're the restraining influence, then it, it expands out a little bit more. It says in verse 8, Then that lawlessness, uh, lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end... At, by the appearance of his coming. Now, that's not talking about the rapture. That's talking about the second coming. 
And when Christ comes back, Revelation 19 expands on it and gives details about it. He's going to, through the sword of his mouth, wipe out the Antichrist, throw him in the lake of fire at the appearance of his coming, the second coming. And that is the one who's coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Interesting. Deception is a part of the Antichrist. Why? Because he's a follower of Satan who's the father of all lies. And it says this, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You know what this is saying? We need to have an immediacy in our evangelism to those people we care about. Why? Because when they're left behind and we're raptured out of here, the Antichrist is not only going to be a world leader, there's not only going to be great tribulation, but he's going to have a deluding influence, and it's going to be very hard to become a Christian during the great tribulation because of the deception of the Antichrist and his powers and abilities. Now, does that mean people won't become Christians during the great tribulation? No. God in his grace is amazing. He's still going to send two witnesses, with probably Moses and Elijah come back in human form and they're going to be preaching worldwide. He's still going to have 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be protected by him going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. He's even going to send an angel with an everlasting gospel to every tribe and every nation because God's a God of grace. But it ain't going to be easy to become a Christian in the Great Tribulation because of the deluding influence of the Antichrist. And you know what? If, if, if we don't have an immediacy in our evangelism, we're missing the boat with people we care about. We should, we should have a, a heart for anybody we care about leading them to Christ so they don't have to face this deluding influence and this antichrist that's going to deceive so many people. Now, question. With this in mind, with all this coming upon us, how then should we live? Well, Paul's going to answer that question in the remaining part of our scripture. Let's jump right in. How are we supposed to live with this stuff coming upon the world? <clears throat> it says this, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through what? Sanctification. How are we supposed to live with the end times coming upon us? With sanctified lives. What does sanctification mean? It means being set apart by God to live for him. It means living out. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It means living out our do- job description of 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and, 9 and 10 that talks about, and first, throw it up on the screen. Uh, no, please. Let's look at this. This is our job description. But you, Christians, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and then what? A holy nation a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So how are we supposed to live in these last days? Holy, sanctified, set apart to be different than the rest of the world where we're not being conformed to all the rottenness and all the evil and all the unrighteousness and the immorality around us. Different. And I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Ultimately, as a Christian, holiness leads to happiness. Because Jesus said, blessed, oh how happy, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
the best, happiest life you live will be a, a life lived for Christ, where you're not just giving in to the garbage around you. You're taking stances. You're living in righteousness. Now, question, how do we do that? How do we live a holy life in a rotten world that's getting rottener? I don't know if that's the word, but it's getting rottener, isn't it? Again, when I was a kid, I remember Andy Griffith's show and Dick Van Dyke and I Love Lucy, and now we got all kinds. Devil's got so many more tools today. He's got not only uh, Netflix. He's got not only cable bad stations. He's not only got that. He's got, he's got Twitter and Facebook and social media where people are posting all kinds of garbage that could pull you in. So how do we live a sanctified life with all, all the tools that Satan has in our culture today? He's going to answer that by giving us three tools as we end, this, end the chapter here. First of all, by the Spirit. Look at what it says. Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Christian, if you're a Christian here today, Christian, the only way you're going to live a sanctified life is by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, it means to live a spirit-filled life. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 talks about the spiritual life. It says, don't get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even our Father. So you know what that's telling us? You want to have a hope of living a sanctified life in a rotten world. You need to be a spiritual Christian, and a part of being a spiritual Christian is being a worshiper. Being someone that just loves to sing and make melody of your heart to the Lord. Someone that loves to just sing spiritual songs and hymns and things back to your God with thanksgiving. And, and Christians, listen, a part of that is being committed to coming to church. Because where, where, where do you sing? Where do you worship? At church. And, and, and if you're going to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit, you need to be a worshiper because God's Spirit inhabits the praises of His people. And when you come into his presence and you're giving him the worship that he deserves and he's worthy of our worship, then he's going to fill your lives with his spirit. And that's why we need to be in church. Because this is our corporate time to bring that worship and the spiritual songs and the hymns and the melodies in our heart to the Lord. And then he'll fill you with the spirit, give you the power you need to win. But it's more than just church, though, church. I think we should worship every day of the week. You know, I got this Alexa thing at our house, and it's, it's kind of funny because you talk to the thing, and it's like talk back to you. What's, what's the temperature out there, Alexa? 67 degrees, and the, tonight's going to be this. And I go, oh, thanks, Alexa. You're welcome. Go, just, just say welcome to me. But one of the things I like about Alexa is, and some of, I had some U-turn guys over last, some of the leadership over last night. We watched the Clemson route, and they know. When they come to my house, as soon as they come, I say, Alexa. Turn on Phil Wickham. No, the whole house fills up with worship. Alexa, turn on Chris Tomlin. Whoa, great is our God. Alexa, do this, do that. And I love that thing. I love that Alexa. Because it fills my house with worship. And that's what I want. I want worship not just Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I want it 24-7. I want it in my house. I want my car to be a sanctuary. And I want your house and your cars to be sanctuaries too. Driving around, play worship music, man. It'll equip you by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a sanctified life. There's power 
being worshipers. And I, we can't do this thing of sanctification, living righteous in an ungodly, rotten world without the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen? And then it goes on. After it says the Spirit is sanctified by the Spirit and faith in the truth, verse 14, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may give the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, the second tool God gives us after the power of the Spirit, which we receive through being worshipers, the second tool for sanctification, living righteous and unrighteous world, is this, glory. God's glory. The Greek word there is doxa. It means his sacredness. It means his greatness. It means his, it can literally be translated, weightiness. And here's what happens. As we, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold his face, we spend time in his presence, his glory then falls on us and changes us from glory to glory into his image. How do you get that? How do you get that glory? I like glory too. I love God's glory because it changes me. How do I get God's glory in my life? Prayer. Spending time in his presence, praying. As I spend time in his presence, I behold his face. And then as I behold his face, the glory comes down. And it changes me to be more like Christ, to live that sanctified life. That's why I think every single believer in Jesus Christ should have a daily quiet time where you begin your day in the word, but also begin your day in beholding his face in prayer. Because Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If any man abides in me, I will abide in him, and he will produce much fruit. But apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. That's nada. You got no power on your own. But as you abide in him and you behold his face, the glory comes down. The power comes down. And Jesus said, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. My favorite room in my house, in fact, you've heard me say this before, but my favorite room in my house is our reading room. It's a special place to me. It's a sanctified place because Heidi and I start our day, we end our day, every day, in the reading room. And it, there's no TV in there. There's no computers in there. There's just glass that looks out on God's creation and two really comfortable recliners. <laughs> And we start our day and end our day with our Bibles and our recliners, and we pray. And I need that. I need that time in God's presence, because I need that glory in my life to change me from glory to glory into his image. And you need that too. So commit, re-up, re-man, re-woman to having a daily time where you just spend time. Behold in his face in prayer. Spend time in his presence. And my suggestion, start your day and end your day that way. A lot better going to bed on the word of God in prayer than on Netflix <laughs> or whatever else you watch. Begin your day, end your day in God's presence and the glory will fall down and it'll help you live a sanctified life in these last days. Last thing we'll close with this this morning after it says the glory, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word or mouth or by letter from us, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts. Notice again, in every good work and in word. Now, last thing he's saying here. Christians in Thessalonica, Christians in Calvary Chapel, Lexington, stand firm. And notice he's saying, stand firm in the traditions that you were taught. 
by Paul. Now, you're saying, well, traditions, I thought we're not supposed to stand firm in traditions. I thought we were supposed to stand firm in the Word of God. Yeah, the traditions that were taught, Paul's talking about, was the apostolic teaching of Paul and the other apostles, and that's the Word of God. It says in uh, Acts 2.42, they continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. The disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because the apostles' teaching and traditions was the Word of God. The apostles are the ones that wrote the New Testament. So the last key, the last tool, we're going to live a sanctified life in these last days. We need to stand firm. In what, church? God's Word. We need to not veer to the left or the right. We don't, don't, don't need to give way to political correctness. Our faith and our stances no, don't need to be politically correct. Now, don't be rude. Don't be arrogant. Be full of grace. But stand on the truth, man. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. We need to be people that stand firm on this book and on the traditions of this book. And our belief and our, our, what we stand for is on the inerrant, infallible, inspired, God-breathed word. Because the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God, God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know why that's important? Because not only is the spirit of the Antichrist in the world today, but we're seeing people fall off the path that are Christian leaders left and right in our culture today. I just read in the last couple of weeks about the, the guy that wrote this Christian best-selling book that's called, you know, something to do with kissing, dating, goodbye. And a whole generation of Christian parents read this book and took the scripture they wrote in this book as a parenting guide and stuff. And he's come out now in the last few weeks and he's basically said, I'm, I'm divorcing my wife and not only that, I'm not a Christian anymore, and I don't believe anything that I wrote in previous books. And I felt like writing him a letter and say, well, why don't you give back all that money you made on that Christian book to the Church of Jesus Christ? But he's just totally off the path. He says, I'm not even a believer anymore. That's wrong. We've got to stand firm, church. Christians, we need to stand firm on the Word of God that's been taught to us and stand firm on that. I want to be like the Apostle Paul who at the end of his life, he said this, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I've what? Finished the course. I've what? I've kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearance. It's not about Christianity. It's not about how you start about how you finish. Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And I want to finish well. And I want you to finish well too. And the only way we're going to do that is by the Spirit, being Spirit-filled Christians that love to worship, singing and making melody our hearts to the Lord, living a Spirit-filled life where we're walking by the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lusts of our flesh. We've got to be people that not only do that, but also people that love to be in God's presence, beholding His face, so He can be changing us from glory to glory into His image, people of prayer, and that we need to be people that stand firm on this book. Don't be worried about being politically correct. Be worried about being biblically correct. Stand firm on the traditions of this book. And that will be the last tool I'll give you for living a sanctified life in these last days. Let's pray. 
Father, we just thank you so much for your word this morning, God. We, again, don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, Lord. And thank you, God, that in these last days, as we're getting closer to the end, that you give us these tools, the tools that help us to live the sanctified life you called us to live in these last days. Thank you for the tools of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling our lives and giving us power. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being that parakletos, the one who stands alongside us to help us to win. In the, in the battles that we face. Thank you for that power in our lives. And help us, Lord, to be more and more worshipers so that your spirit can inhabit our praises in our lives. Thank you, too, Lord, for the traditions of this book we're learning, the Word of God. And help us in these last days to stand firm on what we believe. Help us not to go to the left or to the right. Help us not to be swayed by these winds of beliefs or doctrines that are sweeping through the church. Help us to stick with the Word, God. And Father, I pray too that we would be people that love to behold your face in prayer, begin our days or maybe even end our days in not only your word but in prayer so that you can, again, give us your glory, God, and you could be changing us from glory to glory into your image, God. And Father, this day, I pray that you'd help us as a church to recommit to being the salt and light of the world, God. Help us to, to recommit to that purpose of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And as Mark 16, 15 says, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation so that they'll know the truth in these last days, God. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of serving you. Thank you for the privilege of the calling you've given us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Forgive us, Lord, for those times we just give way to the world. And help us to recommit this morning to be people that live sanctified lives and letting our light shine brightly so that others may see our good works and they too may glorify you, our Father in heaven. Thank you, Father, for this time of just equipping and righteousness. Help us to live it out this week. And thank you for your grace that covers us and strengthens us and saves us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.